Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Harry. And I'm Ben. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we're doing a special reaction to the by-election results. So it's the morning after a night of two very exciting by-election results. Labour won back Wakefield with a 12.7 percentage point swing on a 39% turnout. And that's Labour's first by-election gain from the Tories in a while and it held the seat between 1932 and 2019 before it fell to the Tories and has been classed as a so-called red wall seat since then. And the Lib Dems have taken Tiverton and Honiton with a staggering 29.9% swing from the Tories and that was a 52% turnout and that is, you know, a big historic victory in the southwest for the Lib Dems. Ben Walker is with us, our polling expert. You actually stayed up to live blog the outcomes of these elections, you know, in a great service to democracy, but also to New Statesman traffic, uh, both noble causes. Thanks so much. How much sleep have you had, first of all? Thank you. Uh, Only only about about three, four hours, and I'm always happy to service New Statesman traffic numbers. The reason I'm here, isn't it? (laughs) The reason we're all here, Ben. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you've written your snap take and I do encourage our listeners to go and read it. But why don't you tell us sort of what your take was when those results came in? So it took longer to count than really any of us expected. That's why I've got a croaky voice and uh, uh, to, our <laughs> listeners won't know, but but we're, 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 some of us are recording with video. I am not recording with video. I don't really want to show myself <laughs> here. Yeah, 18 point majority for Labour in Wakefield. That's pretty good. That is bigger than what the national polls would have implied. It's just a touch under two constituency surveys in the seat, but those constituency surveys, I need to sort of emphasise to you, they really assumed Tory apathy would be at the most maximum point available there. What happened in Wakefield was this independent candidate, this Conservative turned independent candidate, Akef Akbar, he really ate into the Conservative vote. He sort of sliced off a lot of what were Conservative voters, albeit in the city centre. His base, he won an inner city ward in some local elections a few years ago uh, from Labour. But he's always been, his base has always been quite Asian, quite Tory as well. So he damaged the Tory uh, share there. If he didn't stand, Wakefield would probably been an 11, 10 point Labour lead, which to be honest with you is in line with what the national polls are predicting. Look, if, 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 you want a, if you want a simple take from Wakefield, it's this. It kind of validates all that we know about polling so far. 
Uh, if there was an election today, Labour would come away with around 300 seats. The Conservatives would be relegated to, what, 240, 250. There's nothing, there's no data, there's, there, there, there is no direction of travel that is convincing of, of anything other than that. Now, Tiverton and Honiton, meanwhile, now that, that, that's something you just have to sort of wonder. How many Conservative parliamentarians sort of waking up today and are just wondering if it could happen in Tiverton, if I could it happen in my seat? It can certainly happen in Eastern and Walton, Dominic Raab's uh, seat in Surrey. He has a very small majority of the Liberal Democrats and uh, Tiverton Harnison was not expected. It shouldn't have gone Liberal Democrat. I suppose people in Westminster thought it would because we sort of, we bake these into to, to our assumptions. But, but to be honest, it was, it, there's no question. It is a huge Shock that this is a product of, of of apathy in the conservative base. It has been hollowed out after what has been almost a year, six months, pretty much, of dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson hitting a record low, hitting a record high rather, uh, and perceptions of competence on the economy, on on the key metrics that the Tories use to win elections. They've just gone down the plug hole. They've been ground into the dust. Right. This is to repeat a conservative vote hollowed out, and if it stays like this. It will be hard for the Conservatives, you know, to re-energise those apathetic voters. They've really got to pay attention now. So interesting. Thanks. And Harry, you in your morning call uh, newsletter this morning, which all listeners should subscribe to, you made the point that there was a lot of tactical voting going on here, which could be a sign of things to come in terms of a potential Labour Lib Dem pact in the general. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a pact. That's the power of it. It doesn't have to be a pact. A pact would in many ways undermine both parties. The thing I think to remember, and Ben can talk to all of this with even greater authority than us, is the Lib Dems now are almost overwhelmingly a, a Tory-facing party. There are very few Labour Lib Dem marginals. And therefore, if you're a Labour voter in a, in a Lib Dem Tory marginal, you're going to feel increasingly comfortable, I think, voting Lib Dem, because also they're not going to put the Tories in again, as they did in 2010 and as they potentially could have done in 2015. So you now have a sort of an alternative to the party that you can back if you're a, a Labour supporter in, in someone like Tiverton. And that's what you saw. You know, the really interesting thing is that in 2019, Labour came second in Tiverton. But as Ben will explain to you, you know, it was, it was widely understood that the Lib Dems would, would have a better chance of, of defeating them there this time because of their local base. And, and you saw Labour voters en masse back the Lib Dem candidate. So if you see something similar in a general, and Ben, I'd love to know what you think about the possibility of, of that working, then you can see a roadmap for the Tories doing you know, at least as bad as the predictions, if not worse. Because if you look at our model, the NS model, we didn't have Tiverton going the Lib Dems. In our model, they win it and they just lost it. So what do you think of that stuff then? The thing with our model, right, it didn't predict Tiverton and Honiton. And the thing it doesn't do is what voters do, which is tactical voting. We haven't been able to model that yet. We're going to get round to it. Just give us time. What the model Britain predicts available on the uh, State of the Nation and New Statesman website, give it a Google if you're listening. What it's really good at is predicting pretty standard by-election fights like Wakefield. We got the Labour vote bang on, and had it not been for the smaller parties and the uh, independent Akifak, we would have got the Tory vote bang on as well. And I was, I'm, I'm really quite quite smug about that, and I'm going to shout about that until the cows come home. But with Tiverton and Hanson, we really uh, just didn't didn't foresee it because we didn't foresee tactical voting and indeed the Lib Dem surge. But I just want to emphasise, if you look at the model right now, we already have the Lib Dems on 22 seats or 23 doubling where they are now. And that is without tactical voting. 
There are a slew of seats out there that just needs a few percentage points shaved off the Labour vote, added to the Lib Dems, and you have the Lib Dems going from 22 to around about 30, 40, 50. At present, you know, the, the defeat for the Conservatives is likely. At present, if tactical voting happens, defeat for the Conservatives will be significant. It will be huge. You'll have places like Harrogate and Nesborough, my uh, home patch, going back to the Lib Dems. It will it last voted Lib Dem in 2005. You'll have the same in Eastleigh, Easter and Walton, definitely. A lot of these like countryside towns, I hate the term blue wall, Please don't call them Blue Wall, but if you want to think of them as Blue Wall, yeah, they're that. <laughs> um, these types of places can easily, can easily be brought to the Lib Dems right now because the Conservative vote, I emphasise, is hollowed out, not just in the so-called marginals that matter, but in so many of its traditionally safer seats, okay, even, and indeed places where the Lib Dems uh, once had a history. What about, you know, alliances and these electoral packs? It's kind of, it kind of helps, I think, both parties for it to be unofficial as opposed to official and, and probably organised. It's more like wink, nudge, nudge type politics. Because if you don't have the Labour candidate on the ballot paper, Labour voters point blank probably will not turn out. But if you do turn Labour voters out, they may actually shift their support from Labour to the Lib Dems on the day of the ballot. That does happen. Those types of voters can be very key coming election time. And by-election results obviously can be quirky. You know, there's protest votes going on, there's apathy, there's, you know, lower turnout than you might get at a general election. But what they do do is cause parties to act or not act. Um, and the interesting news that has come out of these by-election results this morning, and we are recording on the Friday morning just after they've come out, is Oliver Dowden, the Conservative Party chairman's resignation. You know, such a Boris Johnson loyalist, and in his letter of resignation, he doesn't he doesn't endorse the prime minister at all. And he's he's quite damning, actually. You know, he says our supporters are distressed and disappointed. We cannot carry on with business as usual. And someone must take responsibility. I suppose he's referring to himself, but it's a little bit of an allusion to the prime minister there as well. And that resignation came just an hour before he was due to do that broadcast round that, you know, he's kind of been doing so loyally for so long, defending the, well, what some conservative rebels would probably call the indefensible, but going out and sort of batting for the prime minister throughout crisis after crisis and poor result after poor result. And he, he wasn't there to do that this morning. There was some funny reporting from the by-election count in Tiverton and Hunterton suggesting that uh, the conservative candidate had actually locked herself in a dance studio to, to avoid taking questions from the press. I don't know whether that's true, Ben. Who did she learn that from? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting here, and I think this links to the success of that independent candidate, Akif Akbar in Wakefield, is there is angst among local Tory activists and supporters and Conservative council groups, as well as, you know, disillusionment among traditional Tory voters, if you like. Um, Akif Akbar was a Conservative councillor until, you know, a few months ago when he when he left the party calling Boris Johnson an idiot and asking for him to resign. And when I interviewed him when I was in Wakefield, he, he was saying that he was picking up votes, you know, not just in his kind of patch of the constituency, Wakefield East, which is more of a Labour area, um, you know, with a higher concentration of British Asian voters, but also in Horbury, which is a place that we also went to go and report from. And that was a more Tory facing area. And he was saying that, you know, he was picking off votes from there to his own surprise. And Ben, I, and that chimes with what you said about um, him taking some votes away from the Conservatives. So I think the, this subplot, and it's something that Dowden alludes to in his letter when he says our supporters are distressed, this subplot of sort of very exhausted 
fed up Tory activists is a big deal because already the Conservatives don't have as big manpower sort of locally as other parties might do, like the Lib Dems and, and Labour. You know, they have, a, they have sort of a much older base of activists who are going to, going to go out and um, leaflet and canvas for them, for example. And so if you have that distress at sort of how the Prime Minister is leading the party in those local bases, that means a lot for marginal seats and campaigns in them. Anisha, I think that's right. I think that's the, the key point here. The next wave of discontent you're going to see is going to be the, the discontent at a local level. That's what Tory rebels often point to me now. And they say, look, when con- constituency chairmen start demanding yeah. that their MPs get rid of Boris Johnson, which is going to become a lot more likely after today, that's when you'll see renewed pressure for another vote of no confidence. Interestingly, I've spoken to some Tory MPs this morning. One was suggesting that an- another no confidence vote wouldn't be necessary because they were somehow implying that the Boris Johnson would be removed without one. I, I struggle to see how that's going to be the case, given that he's essentially said he'll, he'll never resign. But it is interesting that Downing's gone. You know, when I first saw the news on Twitter this morning, having, unlike Ben, you know, woken at a normal time, I <laughs> I, I, I thought it was almost uh, an April Fool's joke. I couldn't believe that Oliver Downing had resigned. And, you know, we felt the same way when Manura Mirza resigned, even David Frost resigned. It's hard to forget now, but... So many of the loyalists, the, the pillars holding up Boris Johnson, you know, are slowly going one by one. And it's, and it's hard to think now um, who, who really is going to be there for him, apart from the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and Nadine Dorries. So I'll be quite surprised if no one else now goes. I think someone else will probably go. If, if, if someone like Dowden is going, then what does that mean for, for, for others in the cabinet? When does someone like Sajid Javid think it's time to make a move? And, you know, there are other names. When does Rishi Sunak think it's time to make a move? I mean, maybe never. Maybe he's just happy being chancellor. But does he want to see the party just ebb away and support drain and and other MPs make their stand? And then he's just sort of left in the cupboard with Boris or the fridge or wherever he's hiding or in Rwanda. So I think, you know, (laughs) it it is interesting to, to, to think who might move next. Yeah, absolutely. Because those ministers that you listed, and there's many others around the cabinet table who are far less of a diehard Boris Johnson supporter than Dowden is. So it will be interesting right. to see, right. see those choices. Exactly. Yeah, I think things are back on. Some listeners will probably be tired of hearing that, but you know, I've reported before the 1922 committee, there are going to be some elections to the executive soon. Only backbenchers can vote in those elections. It's quite likely, I think increasingly likely after today, that the rebels will get a majority on that committee as they may already have and that there there will then be scope for a rule change later this year Uh, i don't think it's going to be before the summer but it might be after the summer i don't know whether you saw this jeffrey clifton brown who's on the 1922 committee was hinting at that this morning in interviews i think hi it's anoush here this is just a reminder that as a podcast listener you have the option of subscribing to the new statesman with a very special offer you can subscribe for just a pound a week that's 12 weeks for 12 pounds if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach? as whales sometimes are, but the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, 
obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, well, all of that is 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 fascinating stuff. But of course, there's a challenge uh, for the opposition here as well, because while they did win back Wakefield, as I wrote in my piece, winning back quite a tight Tory marginal at this stage in the election cycle, you know, it's quite a low bar, isn't it? It's not that amazing to do that. Obviously, it means a lot for the Labour Party and its current state that it's in, having lost, you know, all of those those seats in the North and the Midlands and, and you know, fighting a long battle to try and win them back again. You know, I'm not undermining the fact that it's a great morale boost for the party. But even John Curtis, you know, the kind of grandfather of polling was out today saying that it wasn't exactly a sort of very positive message about how voters feel about the Labour Party. And that's something that I picked up a lot. And Ben, I'm sure you did as well when I was going round round Wakefield. You know, people were saying that, you know, I met Tory switches to Labour and people were saying that they were going to vote Labour again, but there was very little love for the Labour Party and very little enthusiasm for, for Keir Starmer. Anyone who I spoke to about him sort of either said, first of all, they didn't know who, who he was. That was something that came up. Didn't know what he stood for. Thought that he switched in the wind, you know, whichever the way the wind was blowing, he'd tie his colours to, to that master. Sorry, mixed metaphor there. But yes, this idea of kind of a Captain Hindsight type figure who, you know, doesn't come down either side of the fence, that came up. Or people saying he was all talk and all criticism as well, which obviously is very difficult for a leader of the opposition not to have those those kind of criticisms levelled at them because all they can really do is is criticise government policy, really. So I'm not sure how fair that is. But yeah, there's definitely a problem, an image problem there. And I think the Wakefield vote, although it was in line with some of these these constituency polls, you know, that gave Labour a 20-point lead, it wasn't far off from that. It doesn't suggest that, you know, there's, there's a huge Labour comeback around the corner, does it? The thing with Keir Starmer is the one thing that, that, that that's good about him, if you want to call it that, is that he's not Ed Miliband, he's not Jeremy Corbyn, in that he doesn't turn off the public. He's not exactly a net negative yet. At the same not time, yet. however, yeah, not yet. At the same time, however, he is not a turn on with the public. He is a, what, three in ten of the public still don't really have an opinion about him. Like that, that, that's pretty high. 
you know, at this stage of Corbyn's leadership, at this stage of Miliband's, it was closer to like 10, 15 percent who didn't really have an opinion of Corbyn and, and Miliband. Starmer has not yet impressed the public. And uh, to reiterate, he's better than Miliband and Corbyn, but he's not, you know, standing still. Being being a fence sitter is not exactly much. And this is the thing with Labour at the moment, is that obviously now the public know Labour is not the party of Corbyn. They recognise that. They say that in the polls. They say that in the focus groups. But now they struggle to say what Labour stands for. Perfect example is the rail strikes this week. Labour, the party of the trade unions, apparently. Okay, You have um, uh, rail strikes that, yeah, some Labour uh, parliamentarians broke ranks to stand on a picket. But how many Britons think Labour is pro-strike? You'd be surprised to learn not very many, actually. Around about 40% of the public, according to opinion, didn't really have a clue what Labour's message was on the strikes. And I, I think that's something, you know, quite a key issue, quite a key, quite, a, quite a, like a sort of like identity-defining issue, strikes. For the public not to know where Labour stood on that, was it's a bit, you know, it's a bit like you've got a problem there. You really need to sort out your brand. Labour's brand, by the way, is already a toxic mess. It does need root and branch reform. It's just like reforming it, rebranding it from uh, the Corbyn era to nothing is not a positive. It's not a net positive. And, and you did see Labour sort of, anecdotally at least, suffer somewhat. In Wakefield, where when I was there, I spoke to Conservative voters, or, the, or rather Boris Johnson voters, because let's not forget, a great portion of the gains in the North and Midlands of England and, and indeed Wales came from, a lot of it was appeal with Boris Johnson, an attraction to Boris Johnson as opposed to attraction to the Conservative brand. So they were voting for the Boris Johnson party as opposed to the Conservative party. And now that, now that Johnson is, is uh, electoral asbestos with the public... They're sort of like now just saying, I'd, I'd sooner stay at home than ever vote for you. Labour, Labour is not really exactly getting these types of voters out. They're not really getting these types of voters back. What they are getting, and if I may um, go against the sort of narrative here, understandable though it is, is that one, one of Labour's successes was that it was doing much better in this middle-class neighbourhoods in part of the sea. Anush, yeah. when you were there, you, you went to Horbury and Osset, right? And these are yeah. the most Tory-leaning towns in the sea, right? You've got Wakefield City, Derry Labour, Fair bit of Asian voters, and then you got Horbury and Osset, quite conservative leaning. The most conservative leaning is is Osset, uh, besides the rural villages. And Labour was going in so hard there. And according to observers on the night, they were neck and neck in the most Tory leaning town in the seat. That I think is a sign. You know, Labour, yeah, they, they they're not exactly getting much enthusiasm, but they are netting support amongst these new type of middle-class voters, which, if, if I may uh, bring your attention back to the local election results, does speak to what's going on. One, one point I always tried to keep making was that Labour did okay in the Red Wall. It was on course to be the largest party of the next election. Keir Stone was going to be Prime Minister. The local elections were okay for them. Where they were also doing well was in Rugby, was in Swindon, was in Stevenage. Seats they'd lost in 2010 or earlier that they were now sort of just pulling ahead on. Okay, these types of middle-class commuter suburb towns, Labour's actually coming back in quite a surprising way that we don't seem to talk about because it's not battlegrounds yet. Okay, yeah, look, look, Starmer's not a turn on. He's not a turn off either. He's a bit of a non-entity with voters. He's really got to sort that out. The Labour brand does need root branch reform. It needs to stand for something which voters can actually see and understand, which they currently do. You know, Labour, so much more they need to do to improve their election winning prospects. I just add to that by saying that if Boris Johnson remains in number 10, then I think this Labour strategy of offering very little 
but being the antidote to Johnson may well work and they may get 300 seats and, you know, maybe with Lib Dem support, they could have a confidence supply deal and, and everything else. And that's fine. But that strategy, I'm not sure if it's going to work once or if the Tory party gets rid of Boris Johnson now. It's obviously not obvious who, who, the, who the alternative leader would be and how good they'd be. But once you no longer are up against someone who the public actively dislike as much as they dislike Johnson, then I'm just not sure Keir Starmer and this strategy of being a sort of a non-entity, as Ben calls him, is that a strategy or maybe that's just the reality? I'm not sure that's going to work. And I, I think you know, politics could be turned on its head quite quickly if, if the Tory party ever changed leader. But will they? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. No, it's it's a really interesting question. I think this is the heart of the question for the Labour Party because I, I remember speaking to Mark Steers on the podcast a while ago, former advisor to Ed Miliband, who had been working in Australia. He was talking about Anthony Albanese's tactic of, I think he called it a small target strategy, basically making yourself quite boring so that your opponents don't really have that much to go on. Of course, the flip side of that is that you make yourself a vacuum and then your opponents can stick anything they like on you, which is obviously what the Conservative Party will be trying to do with Keir Starmer from now on, particularly with the strikes. And we are talking about the strikes on our next episode with Will Dunn and Emma Hazlitt from our business desk. So we'll discuss that more then. But yeah, you can see, you know, this Corbynite in a in a smart Islington suit stuff. You know, they're just trying to make Keir Starmer look like a sort of Marxist sleeper agent. And they'll do that more and more as strikes uh, carry on unfolding throughout the summer. I'm less convinced, and that, and that's because of Ben's sort of great analysis of, of the public opinion on this. I'm less convinced that that necessarily is going to be as bad for, for Labour as it is for the Conservatives. When the country feels like it's just not working, it's usually the government that will end up getting, getting the blame for that. But that's not necessarily going to let Keir Starmer off the hook in terms of people just not knowing what he stands for and perhaps thinking that he's a little bit slippery because he's not sort of coming down on either side of these these key issues that are facing society. And that is definitely an opinion that I've had reflected back to me from voters that I've spoken to. With Keir, it's almost just more fundamental than that. I just think he looks worried when he speaks and that's not good. And, you know, it, it's like you go to an event and you watch someone on stage. If they're having fun, then the audience is usually having fun. And with Keir, I never sense he's having fun. The only time he feels comfortable, he seems comfortable to me, is when he's telling Boris Johnson off for his moral failings in Parliament. But he's never comfortable on air, and he never seems to be on the verge of making light of something or making you feel like he's having an enjoyable time. Not because you know government, of course, is serious, but but Tony Blair who has many failings, and I'm no great Blairite, but Tony Blair was someone who was always on the verge of cracking a joke or undermining the opposition or giving you a sense that he knew where he was going because he had a, a sense of his own of his own path. And I just, I don't get any of that with Keir. I don't know whether you guys do, but I think it's more fundamental than his policies or anything else. I just don't think he comes across on a, on a, on a kind of human level particularly well. And I, he may be a good man, but I just don't know if he's a good politician. Do you know who else used to look worried and perhaps slightly pained that they had to do media rounds? Jeremy Corbyn and, in his time as leader, Ed Miliband. Obviously, Ed Miliband has become a lot more sort of camera and publicity friendly since then. But um, yeah, uh, I always remember them looking sometimes ir irritated. Yeah, the, 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 he's desperate to be inoffensive. He's trying to straddle all the voter bases he needs to appeal to. And it's it's 
Sometimes it's obvious, isn't it? You can just tell what he's doing. And he's only best when he's off the cuff, when when in PMQs, something that doesn't sound rehearsed, something that doesn't sound written down in front of him actually comes out of his mouth. And I'm thinking, yes, Kia, you actually said something quite funny. Well done. It wasn't on your script, though. He needs to, and, and this is what I really resent, actually. I know this is getting quite, quite bitchy. I'm so sorry. But immediately after the confidence vote in Boris Johnson, he was giving quite a pretty fiery briefing speech, if you want to call it that, to the media, set piece rehearsal. But he was reading direct from a script. He wasn't even looking at the camera half the time, it, not even 10% of the time. It was, it was quite bad. But if I may uh, take this away from bitchiness just slightly, yeah, as you said, Anoush, <laughs> the, the, the Tories are trying to drive these wedge issues in the public, trying to paint Starmer as the second coming of Corbyn, which the public will not see. Obviously, they, the, the vo voters vastly agree. Starmer's not a second Corbyn. Labour's completely but, but, different but ben, to him. Can, 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 I, can I jump in and defend us? It's not, it's not that we're being critical for no reason. We're, we're being critical so that on the day after the next election, when Keir Starmer potentially loses, you, you have a sense of why. I mean, that's the error we made with Ed Miliband, right? And, and we all remember the 2015 election that we started covering in 2014 in earnest. And, you know, we sort of convinced ourselves that Labour were going to get in. But there was always something about Ed that didn't work and uh, as a leader. And I think we, we see some of the same problems with Keir. And it's just, it feels necessary to say so. Absolutely. No, 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 no. Uh, I, it was me being the bitchy one there. It was me like like having a whinge about his ability in PMQs, really. No, no, don't, don't worry. No, I'm completely on side. And, and for these reasons, you know, I didn't I didn't really expect Labour to do that well in the 2015 election because I saw it is quite like a personality thing for Miliband. The thing with Miliband was, we tend to forget it, he had Labour leads. He had Labour leads on, I think, the final day of three percentage points or so, yeah? But he was far and away in the doldrums, behind David Cameron and preferred Prime Minister. He was a far and away below David Cameron and even sometimes Nigel Farage on likability. He wasn't a well-liked figure. Differences now... Starmer is, you know, preferred prime minister and slightly more liked than Boris Johnson, but that's because Boris Johnson has fallen into fallen so far, really. Starmer's just stood still. He is polling better than Miliband. He is polling better than Corbyn, but that's not saying much because they were both electoral losers. They, again, yeah, so, so to, to, to sort of repeat my... Uh, the my, something I, I just keep repeating in every podcast. Yeah, Starmer's a non-entity with voters. He doesn't turn on. He doesn't turn off. He really just have to get out there and show a bit of leg, show a bit of colour. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Harry Lambert and Ben Walker. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.